Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric Xandra 13. I'm here with Michael Kester. Hello. The movies today are all the colors of the dark and Messiah of evil. Oh my God. <laughs> Don't even know what to do now. <laughs> there are so many themes for these movies. There is so much. I don't even know where to begin on this, man. Look, okay, so here's what I wanted to do. I know that you get the same weird jalo cravings that I do. Oh my God, yeah. Randomly sure. one day, you're like, oh, I need some of this weird, I've got this weird itch to scratch. Right. And usually when that happens, we just grab a couple and check them out. And you know, the Jalo landscape is so vast and we've explored, honestly, so little of it compared to what's out there mm-hmm. that uh, this has been a really satisfying, you know, it's a genre that I think you first showed me and one that we've just been taking in a little bit every year. And it's a very cool amount. But I came across these movies and they're a little bit weirder for, um, they kind of add a little bit of a twist to some of what we've already explored. And so I wanted to talk about the kind of dream giallo, uh, I, I don't know, era, sub, sub, sub movements. Mm-hmm. Move away from kind of the detectives and the blah, blah, yellow book that always comes up and into the surreal. And this was uh, something we see to some degree. I feel like there's a spectrum on these movies. Mm-hmm. Some of them are uh, very rooted in reality. It's a 100% pure detective story where like maybe Jennifer Connelly talks to bees or whatever, but mostly rooted in reality. <laughs> and then you have like the totally bizarre psychedelic doesn't even fit in Jalo. Or like when we call Suspiria a Jalo movie, but it's not. It's a witch right. horror movie that's made by a guy who makes a lot of those. Right. And so there's this whole spectrum. And then also, we always talk about these movies being inside Italy and an Italian movement. Mm-hmm. And today we have two Jalo movies that are outside of Italy. And really, um, at least in the case of Messiah of Evil, I think it gives you that same enough Jalo feeling to maybe throw it in there. But I think purists would not even include it in the subheading. Yeah, I mean, I think too, my my personal theme, and I'll just keep this in my pocket unless you want to explore it today. But my personal theme is uh, what if the Jalo movement remade other horror movies? I do want to talk about that. I like that already. Because I feel like, I feel like it's, it's like a yellow coat of paint on some very familiar horror territory today. Speaking my language, all of this sounds good. Very excited to get it in this show. The only thing we need to say first is that there's a patreon.com forward slash double feature. You can go on there and uh, join us in, in this and other weird adventures as we go through the show. We got a, a big adventure we're coming back to next time. Right. But we want you to come along for the ride. So go check out the Patreon. It's how we keep the show funded. That's how we keep me under this blanket fort. I got a fresh Ethernet cable here, you know? Right. 
I'm able to ask you questions and you can hear what I say. I mean, you know, it's really all often, thanks to the, often I can, yes. <laughs> thanks to the Patreon. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's start with all the colors of the dark. I don't, how do we, I, I want to get to this thing you're talking about already, which is yeah. totally going to yeah. like maybe just throw <laughs> caution to the wind, but uh, I don't know. Can you maybe give me a preview? Can we poke at it a little bit? Yeah, no, it's super easy because it can kind of double as the log line for anybody who's already in the know. Great. So there's two log lines to all the colors of the dark. Uh, I'll give you, I'll give you the long form and then my short form. So the long form is a woman runs afoul of maybe a satanic cult who tries to uh, take over her after the death of her mother or yellow Rosemary's baby. Man, does it have that Rosemary's baby feeling? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I 100% feel that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Rosemary's baby, there's, there's, I love this for a log line. I'm just going to leave it there. I think that's great. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but there's this feeling I'm always chasing with these. And while you mentioned Rosemary's Baby, that is another movie that I am constantly looking for other things that feel like that. Mm-hmm. One, it's a part of New York that feels European to me. So anytime that I can explore that, New York's sure. a big fucking city. Then you have upstate. And, you know, uh, I really feel like I don't know, my heart's into a lot of European nonsense. So anytime I can find some of that where I don't have to venture too far, if you could take a a day trip upstate and go visit it, that's really cool. But when I talk to people about, uh, you know, pitching ideas or what the fuck ever, uh, job stuff, I often mention Rosemary's Baby. I cite that all the time as just a tone piece or just something that's sort of like it's Rosemary's Baby, but this or whatever. And, you know... So it's kind of a fucking problematic movie to be dragging out all the time. It's like, up. Oh, mm-hmm. I got to talk to Eric today. Oh, who's Eric? What's his deal? I always talking about Rosemary's Baby. You know, like that can't be great. <laughs> so, so I'm always looking for like kind of a a good go to for, but alas, I haven't found one yet. But there's another thing as I explore Jalo movies that I'm always looking for, which uh, we talk about Argento all the time. Argento made a lot of Jalo movies. And uh, I remember seeing Bird with the Crystal Plumage and that being, you know, a big landmark movie that created so many icons for what would come later. But for my fucking money, man, the Bava movie, Blood and Black Lace, Mm -hmm. that is it. Oh, yeah. And like Bava was, you know, I feel like Bava was such an influence on these. You see this with all the colors of the dark where uh, Jawa movies, anytime we talk about the the yellow paperback kind of side of it, it's always, okay, well, what were these books? They were detective novels, and they kind of had these sort of twists and clues and all of that. But I don't feel like that represents reality. When we watch Jawa films, they're so detached from any kind of plot. It always seems like a joke to even address what's happening in the films. 100%. I mean, we you mentioned it, you mentioned it earlier in the show, but... When it's time to watch a Jalo movie, uh, two things: it's you're chasing a feeling, not a not a story. Mm-hmm. And two, it doesn't matter which one you put on. You don't sit there and go, <laughs> so "Oh, I really feel like watching Deep Red." Because if you were at my house and you were like, "I feel like watching a Jalo movie," and I'm like, "Well, all I've got is opera." 
you wouldn't be like, oh man, I was really in yes, the mood for phenomena. Yeah, yeah exactly. You wouldn't give a shit. It doesn't <laughs> matter. <laughs> right. Yeah, there are ones I prefer over others, of course, but I never... Because yeah, well, some I'm have excited the monkey when, and some don't. Right, right. <laughs> I remember uh, Deep Red came to IFC and I went and I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, I wish this was opera. Right. You know, or I wish this was blood and black lace. That didn't even mm-hmm. occur to me. I was just like, oh, cool. Right. Because you have so much of the, uh, that deep red screening, by the way, you know, we won't talk much maybe about the dubbing, but uh, when I went to this deep red screening, I just have to tell you about this because it was so wild. They showed the English dub version of the movie, but they had the extra scenes, which were never dubbed into English. Oh, wow. So when it gets to the extra scene, you know how sometimes you get like My Bloody Valentine and they didn't color grade the extras and it just kind of looks like a little rough? Yeah. Well, it was like that, but with the voices. So they would get to an additional scene and the characters would just be speaking in a different voice in Italian instead of English inexplicably and there'd be subtitles. That's hilarious. And then they'd just go back and they'd be doing English again. Amazing. Which is so funny. People know a lot about the various prints and stuff, probably know which one that is, but that was the one they happen to be showing. I would love to screen that and have like two people with microphones just like hot, ready for those scenes to dub live. <laughs> oh my God, so good. That's like a whole that's like a whole untapped market <sighs> for seeing movies in the cinema is live live dubbing. Oh my god. I want to see it, it live. And I'm not talking about MST3K. I'm talking about like like, like people how they like used you to do the like music I want to see you. I want to see you. Yeah, I want to see you as somebody who's trying to like master French live dub Amelie for me. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> what? You just picked the worst combo. There's jeez. Uh, no, we all know that I would be dubbing the uh, woman from Pola X. That's about my That's, level yeah, of French. For sure. That's yeah. The, for broken. Yeah. You could do the waitress from Dummy. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> yeah. That w- That's where you start. That's, you know, some first year, first year Duolingo is what that is. Welcome to La Bagel. Yeah. So, like Bava, you know, he was a cinematographer first and he approached these stories. As well, I even to call them stories is funny. He approached these movies as you know, story was kind of second to what he was doing stylistically. And Blood and Black Lace is just so gorgeous, it's so well designed, and it also starts the Jalo, you know, color, which was uh, such a staple going on later, and also like part of what brought me to all the colors of the dark. So, the way I came to this movie was. This is a Sergio Martino film. I don't think we've done any of his on the show, but he did uh, Torso. And he also did, you know, a lot of these Jalo movies, not a lot we've covered, but a lot of them have these long, crazy titles, which are just so funny and so good. He did this movie called Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. That's the name of the fucking movie. Mm -hmm. It's longer than most American films' taglines. Just so good. But the cover of this movie is really what caught my eye. Right away, if you haven't seen this, look it up. It's, it should be on your device or I don't know the fuck anything works anymore. But I put it on the website. It's somewhere. The cover has the lead of the movie. It's in black and white, sort of uh, tinted. And there's a nipple on the cover. 
And it's got the kind of weird hand that you don't know later is like a, you know, when you see it in the movie, it's the colorful fingernails or what the fuck ever is going on there. But it just looks like some monster hand on the cover. So right away, I mean, any cover that has nudity on it is already like bolder than most covers are. It's enough on a cover not to go with one of the four safe choice templatized covers, but then to do something that's that might get you kicked off a a platform to begin with is just sort of cool. But then, man, the fucking logo of the movie, the title, Mm -hmm. all the colors of the dark, and scrolling across the fill of the colors is this kind of muted rainbow of Jallo colors. Yeah. And when you are- Yeah, it looks like the VHS test screen. Yeah, or it reminded me of the Technicolor logo. You know, it's like this specific palette that uh, that's halfway to gray and it's just kind of these very, I don't know, very, very specific, just swatches, shallow swatches. And what got me about it was the thing you were talking about when you're reaching for a Jalo movie and you have that, okay, I want to watch this. What hits it more than like this cover that's like a little too artsy for its own good in the black and white, but it's also got nudity. And then like, there's a monster hand, but what, you know, a Jalo hand, perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Like never see the killer's face, see the fucking hand so we can toy with like which lady in the movie turns out to be the killer or what the fuck ever. Mm-hmm. And then the colors, the colors just to be like, oh, you know, the other thing you're not thinking about mm-hmm. these Jalo movies, they have great colors. You're going to really like this movie. So it's just like, uh, that, that was it, man. There was yeah. no running away from this poster. I was going to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. And then what surprised me about it is what felt a little different than the other movies we saw, which is the, the sort of surreal, like, I, I'm not sure what you call it, maybe like psychedelic nature of the movie. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, definitely. kind of like almost 60s infused, sort of feeling sure yeah i mean it's 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 like um can't think of a good term for it but it feel it feels like a lucid trip it feels like everything that's happening is happening but sort of like through this haze of of often a real haze with this movie yeah it's yeah beyond soft focus it's like i'm not the whole frame is just melting i'm not sure what the fuck is going on i feel like i'm on the astral plane or something watching this goddamn movie yeah that's a very good way to put it well, yeah, it works with a lot of dream logic or yeah. just kind of like where where are we? I mean, really, yeah, those scenes from, that's why I was so happy when you uh, when you hit Rosemary's Baby. I'm like, oh yeah, a lot of those scenes of yeah. what's really happening here. A couple of the real tableaus of Rosemary's Baby are a lot of this movie, mm-hmm. even where it opens, you know, and you're you're sort of sitting there like, what the fuck could this scene mean? Who could these people be? And our main character, Jane, which by the way, like another uh, another iconic actress, showed up in Hostel 2. You know, mm-hmm. another thing that I love about her in this movie is just like the entire, the performance and the look, so much iconography. You know, she's got this weird, it's like the, you know, the eye makeup and the eyeliner and then especially the highlights around her eyes. It looks like she permanently has like 1930s monster lighting, you know, that sort of like Dracula shaft of light, Bella Lugosi mm-hmm. kind of thing. I saw Nightmare Alley recently. Maybe that's what making me think of that. But I feel like that kind of style is 
sort of uh, coming back again. I feel I've seen a, a couple of things where people are kind of using that patches of light, you know, little beams of light kind of look. Sure, that's the Macbeth did that shit too. Oh, did it? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's the lizard in Spider Man. It's the lizard in <laughs> right? Spider Man. Like, yeah, right. It's like literally like yeah. I have to yeah. sit in a. I could, you can only show me when the room is dark and there's a beam of sure. light coming through. Like it's just well, all. Over I mean, the that's place actually right that's actually a really good way to put it, uh, especially for people who are following along at home and not watching the movies because you definitely saw Spider Man. Essentially, what that sort of vibe is, and it it sort of harkens back to what you and I are chasing when we're talking about looking for Jalo is there's sort of this understanding, right? And I don't know if you're in the mood to call it out, but I'm going to call it out. All right. So you can hide behind me or join me. Um, <laughs> Great. But there's sort of this understanding that like, it's not a great movie mm-hmm. in the like mm-hmm. vastly artistic <laughs> landscape of cinema. And so by this token, the filmmakers probably know this to a certain degree and have to get creative on things like lighting. How do we make this look not shitty? Uh, and that's when you get dramatic swaths of light. But remember, because, like, yeah, I didn't even mention that for the light because we don't see that lighting in here. I just meant that the makeup evoked it, right? Because she has the highlighter like around her eyes. But yeah, it's total, it's iconography all the time. If you're not going to amp up the story and keep people engaged at that level, then you didn't, you know, you didn't make it through from the 70s till now and show up on a show for doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So what are the other elements? Yeah, I think things like even even the makeup or in a lot of movies the lighting. Sure. That's really key to what we're showing up here to do. Right. That's the stuff you don't see in other movies. Well, and I think that all that's all predicated on what you were what what you were saying earlier about how you know, to be honest, part of the fact that I can call this you know, the Jalo version of Rosemary's Baby is good for recall for me because a lot of these, a lot of these, you know, Italian heavy horror movies are, I mean, like, it's not outside of the question. You might catch me on a day where I don't know what happens in Deep Red. Yeah, yeah. Um, or that I couldn't tell you the difference between Deep Red and Cat of Nine Tails and... Uh, four flies on gray velvet. Like I mean, I, uh, sure, but that's not the point. the The point is that there are these series of tableaus, and that it's leading you to a place, and that it's constant. And that's this is the key. It's constantly evoking a feeling. It's not moments of this feeling. It's not you know. It's oh, not, you travel to another I, world and you live there for two hours. Yeah, it's it's not. Um, yeah, I mentioned Macbeth, but it's not like a Coen Brothers thing where mm. you're con- where where it's sort of like a film, and then it's like bah, oh, I I forgot that this is a Coen Brothers movie, and you know it keeps surprising. Hudsucker Proxy comes to mind. It's a movie that like is a normal movie, but then every once in a while it gets really Coeny. Yeah, or uh, Barton Fink is another great example of this, and. But Jalo is not that way. There is no point whereby all the colors of the dark feels like a normal movie and then jumps back into Jalo territory. You are absolutely 100% on the astral plane, as you said, the whole time. Yeah, you can't not be. I, with As often as they use these repeat motifs too, like, okay, so the, uh, you know, the makeup is even further enhanced by like how 
how funny it is that this girl like wakes up in this full makeup. She goes to take a shower, gets out, still has the makeup on. Like the icon is visible at all times. The score, we often talk about the score. This movie is no different. It's nearly a rock soundtrack. I mean, there's there's heavy drums in the score and the there's a reoccurring motif with the score all the time. We're coming back to like, oh yeah, now we're doing the chase music. Now we're doing the, it feels... So, well, like the, you know, like the infamous Goblin score. I mean, I hate to invoke a lot of the same stuff as some of the other Jalo shows, but those are the, that's the, um, the through line between a lot of this stuff and why I look at one movie and kind of call it, as we'll see a lot with the next movie, easily go like, oh yeah, I think Messiah of Evil is a Jalo movie. Even if it's not, we can talk about a lot of the same stuff. To me, that is... You know, people have these different lines they draw around what does or doesn't fall into this genre, but that's what I'm looking for much more than what a lot of people usually cite, which is like detective this or that, follows this kind of mystery structure, this narrative structure. A lot of that's present, but you can, I think, you can do these movies and do, you know, like this is mostly a dream psychology kind of movie i don't feel like there is mystery to it but i don't feel like solving the mystery is really i don't want to sit down with you and be like so at what point in the movie did we figure out the thing that is the whatever you know it's the style it's the sort of um additional layer of gothic influence on this both of these movies have a lot of that Mm mm-hmm and in this one, it's it's kind of the Satanism, the satanic panic, the cult stuff. You know, that's a little bit different than, we see that a lot in horror. We see it a lot in the 70s, but I don't think we've seen it a lot in Jalo. It usually ends up being one person until they got a little more supernatural, they got a little more witchy. But I also don't feel like we hit that until... You know, one of the unfair things with talking about Argento so much with these movies is he made Jalo movies far after people were, far after they were hot. Right. He continued making them into the 80s and the 90s. And really, you could make some, I mean, he literally made a movie called Jalo that we did on the show with Adrian Brody. But I also would argue that that is why he has become so synonymous with it because, and no surprise that Michael's about to talk about, um, when video happened, but Argento was the one doing Jalo when home video was coming out. Yes. And so, you know, fucking Suspiria came home before somebody put any Bava on celluloid and sent, you know, it was, they were coming out new at the time of video. Long before all the colors of the darker Messiah of evil were ever trend, like transferred from reels to home video. Mm hmm. I assume. Should we logline, if at all possible, Messiah of Evil? Oh, dude, super easy. So two loglines for Messiah of Evil. But you can't mention Dagon again. That's not allowed. Easy. I did think a lot about it, but uh, I got another one. Okay. Uh, So uh, Messiah of Evil is... uh, uh, the story of a woman who is it? It's not her father, is it? I've, I've. It is her father. Yeah, compl- it is her father. Although he's okay. missing, so her f- not presumed dead yet. Right. So that's that's what I'm. So a, a a girl woman goes searching for her missing father in a mysterious city by the sea, 
only to discover the ghoulish fate of not only her father, but all of the townspeople or yellow wicker man. Yes. Yes. Wicker man is, uh, is also, you know, invading that kind of community. I mean, this is great because we get to talk about the themes right away for this, which is something that I would almost not feel the need to, but Messiah of evil. I found that this one hit a lot closer to home We've been covering a lot more of um, this. Well, we covered Dagon, you know, mm-hmm. and we were talking about Lovecraft earlier. And after the the you know popularization of the reckoning with Lovecraft's work, I've been thinking about that a lot just from that episode. You know, you called out that the Lovecraft stuff was written with a racist hand and may have been racist itself. And I hadn't really considered that the work was racist and it just planted this little fucking seed. And I started thinking about these movies and I'm like, well, yeah, of course you come to a town where everybody's an other and they fucking creep you out because they are, you know, like, yeah, it's (laughs) like there's a super racist read of that movie. But uh, there's a, you know, there's a very H.P. Lovecraft feeling in this film and it's obviously it's divorced from the writer himself, with let, which lets us separate, you know, what else we're doing with this kind of outsider feeling. But I think the places where it overlapped with something like, you know, Dawn of the Dead, or um, more specifically, I guess, Night of the Living Dead, although the grocery scene in this is very like front of mind, mm-hmm. you know, our lead goes somewhere looking for her weird fucking art father and finds this place that uh, it's not necessarily devoid of people, but the people are a little strange and she doesn't quite know why yet. And she winds up shacking up with all of these kids. And uh, I mean, I guess let's stop there for a second. So here's another thing that we haven't talked a lot about on the show, but This time and place is one of my favorite in horror. I talked this year about uh, my least favorite time in horror, the 2000s, when we started picking up a lot of horror movies in our own life. But man, the early 70s. Here's what I love about the early 70s for horror. So, you know, you know all this. Like, you come out of the 60s, what do you have? You have, like, all this psychological stuff. You have Alfred Hitchcock. You have... um, uh, even the Polanski stuff, you know, we were talking about, mm-hmm. like that. Even once it's in the seventies and much later, the sixties was so much about psychological horror and really about the the kind of pop psychology horror. And that's sort of a weird place to imagine horror being for people who maybe grew up in the age we did, or I feel like. For everybody I've known who's been into horror again and again, their favorite decade is the 80s. Very popular decade for horror. And, you know, you mentioned this stuff coming to physical media. It was easier to get the tapes of stuff from the 80s. There was a lot of discovery happening in that period. And I do think a lot of good horror. When you think of the greatest directors of horror, you list off all their names and they were all making stuff in the 80s. But in the 80s, we had the slasher franchise. And even before we knew 
that slashers would be such a good formula that we could make a franchise. We had one-off slashers. And even very early in that, we had, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which to me reads much more like an art house horror film than the Mm -hmm. eventual franchise. So we know all this stuff. But there's this little period, man, like the early 70s, where they were sort of done with all the psychological stuff. They were bored of it, but they hadn't quite figured out the machine of how to just crank out horror movies yet. Mm -hmm. And so every goddamn movie in the early 70s, every horror movie is so weird because they're just off trying all of this weird stuff. Well, I mean, a lot of the fran- a lot of the a lot of the franchises, and uh, basically all of the all of the the mechanical horror movies are coming out of appropriately, but not the same country are coming out of Europe. You know, you you think about uh, remember Hammer. This is when Hammer is cranking out Christopher Lee after Christopher Lee after Christopher Lee after Christopher. There's like eleven Draculas yeah. from the 1970 to 1980. That's where the factory farm is for horror. So other countries are, you're right, they're, they're kind of trying to figure out what they're doing. And it's also interesting because this, this reminds me of a conversation we had a long time ago on one of our other journeys, which is when we were looking at the 70s sci-fi stuff. Mm, yeah. You know, when it, I always think of Silent Running as like this movie that like shouldn't have ever been made, but is incredibly good. You know, it's like, what's this sure, movie about? It's sure. like about this, this like space farmer and his three robots and how that's a bad time. That's the movie. I mean, there's no plot outside of that. It's literally like, what if plants in space? Yeah. Period. Yeah. Let's make it. And so, yeah, I think, I think that there's this really special thing that you're, that you're onto, which is. It's sort of, it's, it's, you know, we talk about exploitation all the time. We're going to talk about it next week. Um, but as the big studios sort of lose their stranglehold on what movies are being made and, and as smaller theaters start putting out smaller movies to see, that's where a lot of these gems are before, like you're saying, again, also very correct, and I hadn't thought about it, is the 80s come around and it's just, it's mechanical for two reasons. It's mechanical because we've finally struck a formula that, you know, you keep fucking beating the dead horse till it stops spitting out money. And you get double the sales because you put out Jason, then you put out Jason on tape and people buy it twice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of that works. I mean, obviously we're both fans of the stuff in the 80s. So uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, nobody's I don't mean, accusing you of not liking <laughs> well, eighties. What I say, it's like on a conveyor belt. By that time, you know, I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. I feel like, oh, we really got a groove. Sure, there's a uh, you know, Messiah of Evil comes out at at about the same moment. I mean, I think just before Texas Chainsaw does, uh-huh. and I really don't think. The first Texas Chainsaw doesn't come out and everybody immediately even goes, oh, this and a franchise of this and a franchise of everything. Mm-hmm. So we've even got a couple of years after that. Mm-hmm. And so I just love this period. And I also love when you get these weird movies. You know, this is a very independent film. We're not, uh, we're not seeing a movie that's, you know... I mean, it real, really feels like it's made by the couple of people we see in the movie. The last movie is made by an Italian director, but in London, takes place in London. So it's outside of Italy we see this. And this movie, I mean, I like thinking about it as a Jalo film because I like to think about it as, oh, an American Jalo film. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of a weird and interesting concept. 
Because in 73, we get a movie like this and it's made for so little money and it's so bizarre. And so what you end up seeing because they don't have a lot of money is there seems to be less of a wall up between us, the audience, and the people in the film. I get a lot more of that kind of cultural document feeling from watching this. Mm-hmm. Like it, The most interesting part of this to me is actually looking at the actors and looking at this group of people and looking at what the movie's about mm-hmm. and going like, wow, so what were they, who were these actors and what were they thinking yeah, it's about? Got like, it's got like little Dreamlander elements to it. It does. Doesn't it feel that way? Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, so this guy, he's kind of playing it a little aristocratic. Like how much of that is mm-hmm. just that actor doing that and how much is like he, the, his character in the story does that. And just wondering who these these people were and looking at it almost like slice of life in a way, I guess. What did they, uh, who thought what parts of it would sell and where did the weird, you know, I don't know, like they're kind of hippie. I get a hippie read from the kids, even though they don't, the characters aren't necessarily written that way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like you have her dad as this artist, this sort of like tortured artist. And that's a very strange and dark thing in the movie. When you see his art, there's a couple of things in this that I literally think you could have taken off the wall and, and you know, time machined them to modern day and sold them as like Banksy stencils. Mm-hmm. They just look so, I don't know, they have so much that, that look. So I feel like there's a lot in this movie that I want At to kind of like. At least Mr. Brainwash stencils, yeah. <laughs> right. There's a lot in this movie that I want to uh, to kind of pause and and really sort through. And once again, like the last movie, the fucking cover was the thing <laughs> that reeled me in on it. You know, the cover is another could almost be the same girl from the last movie. Mm-hmm. Another It does look like the same girl to me. Big ghost face mm-hmm. with this sort of blue black hair waving over the blood red moon and you look at it and just the way it is painted it has this illustrated style that says to me oh one of these films or like some weird 70s art house horror sure, film sure yeah well it 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 you know there's there's so many um I know you're going to identify this because you go to so many theaters, but there are so many like movies that exist more as posters than films that I always like want to chase. You know Mm. what I mean? Like what? Where, well, so like, you know, you go to a movie theater and they, like a draft house always does this, but, but independent theaters always have these, you know, posters that are up for art's sake. Right. Sure. Almost to the point where the film itself doesn't matter because the poster is doing all the heavy lifting. Sure. It's very similar to like when Rob Zombie names a tour some bullshit and then you go, well, it's probably only valuable in in title, but I am (laughs) now going to see what it is. Uh And so there's sort of this like pantheon of like, it almost feels like I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I can articulate this in a way that will make sense. You, we have a good track record for, I think I'll be okay. But you know, um, you know, in like old Western movies, the old Western towns were just the facades. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I kind of feel like there's this, this type of film that exists in modern day. Uh, Obviously the films have always existed. I'm not saying that there's like some shadow Illuminati that's like making movies retroactively, but there are movies that exist 
in in modern culture that are really only valuable as the facades. Mm. But I'm just like really curious, like what's actually in those buildings. Sure. So like I'm I'm like going door to door, like going into these buildings almost, and and Poking like the people in there the are fake almost cut out window. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, and people are almost like oh shit, I didn't think you were gonna look in here. Uh, yeah, here's a movie I guess <laughs> that has something to do with the front cover. Yeah, yeah. You know, you like have a Quick, you see the a facade with a blood it says tear like, on it. Make sure she bleeds a tear. Yeah, yeah. You see like you see like a sign that says barbershop and you like look through and the crew's like, "Oh shit." Uh grabs like scissors and starts just like cutting another person's hair <laughs> yeah, for yeah, no yeah. reason. Yeah. That's like the there's like this whole pantheon of movies that I feel like exist only to support their covers. Yeah, well when I saw this, the time that it was once again popping up everywhere was actually, you know, it's funny. A lot of people, the pandemic started, they watched Contagion. And, you know, mm-hmm. we watched Contagion on the show when the <laughs> pandemic started, everybody was watching Contagion. But the sort of like whispered underground movie to actually check out was Messiah of Evil. And that's what the cool kids were watching. Mm. So I was seeing that, that poster pop up a lot, but I didn't connect it at this point. But I'm sure... Like, this is a couple months after the pandemic, you know, remember back and like people are chasing around rolls of toilet paper and there's armed guards at the Ralph's or the the fucking grocery store. Like, you can see where this would suddenly connect in a new way, right? Especially like I'm living in LA at the time. This takes place, you know, in California. There is a very authentic kind of feeling to the grocery store scene and going there, we had 24-hour things in Los Angeles, not a lot of them, but like you could go to a 24-hour grocery store and it's a big building and it's brightly lit and no one's fucking there. And it feels like this movie. Mm-hmm. 24-hour stuff in New York is a whole different feeling because it it just feels like a normal, right? not that there's a ton of it right now, Right. It's not even the 24-hour culture that I think it was before I moved here. But you go to a 24-hour store, and it's kind of just like being in the store at 3 p.m., but there's a little less people. Sure. There's a real weird twilight kind of feeling to being in this Mm -hmm. bright, lit, giant thing. Totally. At 3 a.m. in in the San Fernando Valley. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and this movie hits that, that sort of ever-present sound of the sea, you know, was not literally what Los Angeles was like, but it adds to that feeling. I guess what I'm just trying to get to is the overall apocalyptic feeling of, oh, some I'm in a place and things are different now. The world's changed. Like, I'm in some sort of weird seaside town and I can't trust that the people out there aren't, you know, part of some deadly blood moon cult that's gonna kill me with their coronavirus i don't know you know what i'm saying here i get it you've <laughs> articulated it perfectly in my terms yeah, yeah perfectly absolutely perfectly um you know that society itself is like floating out to sea i guess i don't know there's also a, a strange element of kind of like outsider art i feel like to this movie maybe that's because of the mm-hmm. the independent nature of it But one of the things I really loved was that feeling is there and that is like, that's a lot more masterful and a lot more intentional, but we've never really talked too much, I don't think, about actual outsider art here. On Double Feature, I mean, 
sort of this idea, I guess, of just like people who, well, in film, it would be like people who don't make movies make a movie. And what is it like? And how is it different? And when you really talk outsider art, you talk about people who have just like no comprehension of what right. the medium they're using, like what it typically does ever. Like if Werner Herzog were to give you a hug. David Lynch makes a quinoa video, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I don't, you know, I don't mean to say that these guys don't know what it's like to make a movie because there's a lot of this movie that is, again, it really, it, it does absolutely the specific thing it's trying to accomplish. The people on the beach, the sort of, all the stuff I just talked about. But then there's other parts that are like, I think the scares is what I'm thinking about. Where, uh, you know, imagine like she goes to the gas station and there's scenes in the gas station that are sort of like, they're unsettling because the structure of, you know, set up and pay off is all wrong. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a sort of uh, winding of that spring where you have, you're doing a scare scene and you're, the rote way to do it is to have some kind of tension which all the elements lend to. The camera work lends to it, the actor's performance. We're talking uh, mise-en-scene mm-hmm. stuff here again. So all the element, the score specifically lends to it. And then you have a jump, a payoff, or you don't, and that's what's unsettling about it. But the jump is the one that, I mean, everybody knows the jump. It's a loud sound. It's a quick action. It's a thing on the side of the frame you didn't expect. And this movie kind of does these like, like the timing is weird or something, or like the score doesn't wind up with it, or the jumps are half a beat too late, mm-hmm. or, you know, the jump happens visually on screen, and then like the score kind of pops later, but in like a bizarre way that detracts from it. And it just sort of made me feel like I could never get the rhythm of the scares enough to not be caught off guard. And it added this great further sense of like, what the fuck is going on in this town? Like what? I don't even know how to be afraid of this movie correctly. It's so, I don't know, I guess like kind of off-putting in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, the score's this like fucking vibraphone, like it's out of a 50s alien invasion film or something. You know, it's all these, these strange elements that come together and do this. And I think this is another thing that I love about both of these movies today. We didn't talk about it much in the previous movie, but it also has this, I don't know if I should mention it here. <laughs> well, it's like the ending of the movie you know, sometimes they don't explain something very well in a, a movie and they have to go in and they do a pickup line in the film, right? Mm-hmm. They just kind of add a little, you usually see these in the, when the climax, the climax of the movie, somebody in the production, maybe the studio themselves, maybe the director, somebody thinks, wow, we really haven't set up the stakes well enough. So while they're running towards the conclusion of the film, you try to find a scene where you don't see one of the characters' mouths. You have the actor come in and dub in a line that's like, wow, and if we don't get there in time, don't forget that your grandma will die. You know, you just like wedge that in there. And it's always corny when they do this because if you can't see the character's mouth, you know that that, and it's like one of these hyper Mm -hmm. to the point, like let's just shout the plot one more time when we're starting the third act or what the fuck ever is going on. But this movie ends 
with one of these. And not just one, but like the entire end of the film is her standing there and delivering like a speech, a pretty long one where we never see her mouth. The camera never goes to her face. Mm-hmm. And then the movie ends. <laughs> it's like, it's as if they got to the end of the film, had no ending for it, and just like wholly invented one in sure. an overdub line, which is about the weirdest thing this movie could do, is what I wanted to say about that. All right, let's get out of here. All right, we have a website. We've spent enough time in Jalo land. Let's not spoil ourselves, okay? We have a website. It's doublefeature.fm. We have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash doublefeature. We have, from the Patreon, some executive producers whose names are as follows. Sincerely, a thank you to Henrik Dinner, the Abbot of Unreason, Tom Leonard, Tony Gleed, and John Thank all you guys for being executive producers and for all of our patrons, pay, patri, but, and for all of our patrons on the Patreon. We'll just dub it. Um, we, uh, we aren't going home just yet. We're going to familiar and unfamiliar territory simultaneously next week because we are returning to our journey, which like in a way is familiar for a couple reasons that I assume we'll get into next week. But we aren't going where you expect because with exploitation, we're going all over the fucking world with Mondo Kane and with our uh, French extreme movies, we're going to Southern California. So (laughs) that will be 29 palms. Um, So next week, our journey continues with Mondo Kane and 29 palms. Beautiful. Watch more fucking film. All right. Bye.